offertory piece for what we're going to talk about this morning as we come to this high priestly prayer of our Lord as it has been called on numerous occasions. We really are coming to the end of the upper room discourse. We're coming to the time when Jesus has been spending a a clear amount of time preparing his disciples for his death. He's prepared them for what's about to come. He said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to go away, and that's to your benefit that I go away so the comforter can come, and I, can, I will still be with you, with him. I mean, there's all the, the discussion there that he's trying to get them to see that even though they are going to be really discouraged and really despondent that he has gone, they really ain't gone. And he's not leaving them like orphans. He's not leaving them by themselves. And so he's finished all of that, and, and then he goes out and he prays. You know, I, I would imagine that if you and I were facing, knowing that we were facing death, knowing that it was just a few hours away when we would be taken out and, and executed, I, I have a feeling we would pray. I'm not real sure that our prayer would be a lot like Jesus. Now I realize he's God and we're not, okay? I, I'll, I'll give you that. We, we recognize that he is who he is and we are who we are. But his prayer teaches us a lot about him and about our needs. Because it's amazing, in this prayer, the first five verses, which is all we're going to look at today, in the first five verses, he prays for himself and about himself. And then you come to the verses 6 through 19, he prays for those disciples that are right there with him, those who are in the garden with him, those who are about to see him arrested, those who are about to be totally confused and run and hide and fear for their lives. They're right there with him, and he prays for them. And then in verses 20 through 26 in this chapter, he broadens that. And he says, I pray not only for these that are here with me right now, but I also, Father, want to pray for those who are going to believe in me because of their word. And, and so he prays for the church. The church, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Samaria, not just in the Roman Empire in that day, but he prays for the church at Grace Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky, 2,000 years later. He said, I want to pray for everybody who is a believer because of the testimony of the apostles. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and in this place, you are a result of, you are a product of the fact that, that, God, that Jesus prayed for you and those apostles went out and shared the gospel and, 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 and they've shared it down through the ages until it's reached right here in little old Somerset, Kentucky. Thousands of miles, thousands of years. But here you are, a product of the testimony of those apostles, and here you are, the people that Jesus was praying for 2,000 years ago. You know, I, I don't know about you, but that, that kind of encourages me. Uh, it, we sometimes say, boy, I wish I could just have been with Jesus. I wish I could have seen his earthly ministry. Folks, I'm more excited the fact that he was praying for me when he was on the earth. And not only was he praying for me then, he's praying for me now. He's still our intercessor. He's still our advocate before the throne of God. Praying for us. Lifting us up. So, in this prayer that we'll look at in in three sermons probably. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones took two years to preach this chapter of John. I'm not planning to take quite that long. Uh, but, uh, but he did, and I would encourage you, if you really want some good devotional reading that will just bless your heart, buy a copy or borrow a copy of Lloyd-Jones' sermons. They're now in one volume on 
uh, uh, on John chapter 17, it will blow you away. I mean, it's just it's powerful, powerful stuff. But Lloyd-Jones died in 1981, but uh, he was a tremendous expositor, and I love reading him. But I won't, I won't take his, uh, his approach, because I think in, in his first one, he, his uh, first sermon was these things, the two, first two words of this chapter. I'll go a little further. Let's look at those first five verses. Follow along as I read from John's Gospel, chapter 17. 17. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, and to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I ever had with you before the world was. Before there was a creation. Before there was anything. Lord, Father, as I glorify you, glorify me back into your presence that I may experience the glory that I had before we even created this world, Jesus would say. It's amazing that as you look at this whole chapter, which we're not going to expound the whole chapter today, but if you, if you read through this, and I encourage you to do that this week, read this chapter several times, you, you find that, that really chapter 17 is sort of a crescendo in his prayer and a, a, a remembering of all the things he's taught, really from the first chapter all the way through the 16th chapter. You, you'll find that that, that Jesus is reiterating principal themes that have gone through this whole book. One is Jesus' obedience to the Father. In these first verses that I just read, you find Jesus talking about him having come to do what the Father sent him to do, having accomplished the work. Jesus is coming to the cross now. In fact, I would dare say that at this point you have Jesus embracing the cross before his disciples so that they will understand that even though he struggled with it, in the garden with some of the other recountances of the, of the other gospel writers, the other accounts of the gospel writers, he struggled and sweat uh, bloods of, or, or sweat drops like blood. But I want you to understand, here he's embracing, he's saying, I know why I came into the world, and I've accomplished that. I'm about to fulfill it completely. So you see Jesus' obedience to the Father. You see the glorification of his Father through his death and exaltation. All through this book, Jesus talked about pointing to the Father, uh, showing the Father, revealing the Father. And now, in, in His death and in His ultimate resurrection and exaltation, in His ascension, you're going to see that the Father receives all the glory and that the Father is magnified in the eyes of those who are looking on. You also find the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. I came to show the world what the Father is like. Jesus has said. I came to show you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When the disciples pondered just, Lord, 
Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. He said, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in this prayer, he's going to show the revelation of God all the more in himself. Fourthly, in this prayer, you see the theme of him choosing the disciples out of the world. We saw in John 15 when he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I chose you for a purpose. And that is true of you and me today. He chose us for a purpose. He has called us to himself for a purpose and for a reason. And so here he's going to pray, Lord, I've chosen them. I brought them. I've saved them out of the world. They are in the world, but they're not of the world. And we'll talk about all that when we get to it. But Jesus, I want you to understand, I am actively at work in the lives of the disciples, the lives of my disciples. He will pray about the disciples' mission in the world. We've just prayed for missions. We've just prayed for Mary Beth. But it's not just that type of mission that he's talking about. That is part of it, but it's our mission. It's not missions, it's our mission. And as believers, we are given a mission and a commission from the Lord. And Jesus prays in this prayer later on that we will, we will see that fulfilled. That we will carry it out. That we won't stop important to see. Then he'll talk about the unity that we're to have that's to be modeled after the unity between the Father and the Son. He will pray, Lord, make them one, even as you and I are one. Make them one together. Let them show unity so that the world will believe that you sent me. Wow. Amazing truth. And then he will talk about their final destiny in the presence of the Father and in the presence of the Son when we are glorified in His presence. All those things He prays about, and they're all things that He's talked about up until this point. As He's prepared those disciples for His death, and He prepares you and me as His disciples to live in this world. From the very beginning of this fourth gospel, Jesus portrays His passion as God does His work in Him and through Him and in our lives because of it. So He embraces the cross. He says, that's why I came. I won't shirk my responsibility. I won't shirk the purpose for which I came. I won't run away from it because it's going to be difficult. And it is going to be difficult. Not so much because he hangs there physically in pain, but because he hangs there bearing our sin in his body. That's the hell of the cross. He suffers the, the wrath that was reserved for us. We sing about that in Christ alone and, and other hymns that we sing. He hangs there bearing what you and I deserve. That's the horrors of the cross. And a film can't portray that. A film can't show that. It can show blood and gore and, and hurting and suffocating and all that type of stuff on the cross. But it cannot picture the real agony, the real pain, the real difficulty that Jesus faced on the cross. So he embraces that. I said this kind of serves as a, the beginning of the crescendo, which will ultimately be climax in chapters 18 through 20 in the passion and the resurrection of Christ. But, but, but I want you to see that, that it is kind of a, in this prayer, he's kind of bringing the crescendo, the things he said. If you look back in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist is down by the Jordan and he's baptizing. And 29 says, and the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Sin, not plural sins, but the sin. He takes away that rebellion. He takes away that 
disobedience for all who believe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a glorious thought that John put in our mind in reading this from John the Baptist at the very beginning. And now in this prayer, Jesus is going to show us that that truth, the Lamb of God, is being magnified, glorified, exalted, even in his death. As he serves as the perfect Passover lamb to take away sin. Not just one that can symbolize it, but one that can really do it. Or in, in verse 34, that same chapter, chapter 1, where John records for us this. He says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You know, the theme begins to show this is the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. He is God incarnate, and the testimony of the apostles is going to begin to express that. Or in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus said there, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In verse 3 here that we just read, we're going to look at in a minute, he talks about this eternal life. Back there he just says, if you believe in the Son, you will have it. But here he's going to talk more specifically about what it is. And you can go on and on through John's Gospel, and you see that theme of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the eternal life is going to be issued or emphasized as we've seen it all the way through that. And it's important that we understand that. It's a crescendo, it's building, it's coming And so Jesus says, John tells us the first phrase belongs to John as he writes it. And then Jesus starts speaking with the word Father. He says, these things Jesus spoke. And after he spoke these things, that is the upper room discourse that we just looked at. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said. Can you picture Jesus? They're out of the upper room. I'm not sure, we're not sure exactly where they are at this point. They're probably already headed toward, if not at the garden. Because back at the end of chapter 14, it said, he said, let us arise and go out of here. So part of that upper room discourse is taking place probably outside of the upper room. And, and now they go out, and he gets to this place of prayer. And it's, it's different from the prayer that's recorded by the synoptic gospels, where they concentrate on his agonizing over this. John doesn't concentrate on that. And And it would be foolish for us to think that Jesus, as he's coming to that last moment where he's about to fulfill all that he came in the world to do, that he only prayed once, wouldn't it be? So the synoptics emphasize one part of it. Jesus emphasizes this. And it says, as he came to this place, he lifted up his eyes and said. Now, if I were to say to you this morning, as I've already said earlier in the service, now let us pray. Let's pray together. What do you just instinctively do. You bow your head, you close your eyes. That's the instinctive way, because that's how we typically pray. The typical position for the rabbis, and in Jesus' day, was not to bow your head and close your eyes. We see that as an act of reverence. We see that as an act of submission. We see that as an act of saying, you are Lord and we are your slave. But in that day, the the real position of prayer was to lift their eyes up toward the heaven, especially if they were outdoors, to look up toward heaven with eyes open and speak to the Father and pray to the Father in that position of looking up. You'll see some pictures drawn. Now, I don't put a lot of stock of 
for theological accuracy in pictures. You know that because they're just artwork. But you see a lot of pictures of Jesus actually kneeling with his hands crossed and, and looking upward into heaven. He always has a halo, and somehow that kind of, you, you think, well, that, only those with halos can pray that way. That's not true. But he lifted up his eyes. He began to pray. And what a prayer. He starts out in verses 1 and 2 by simply saying, Father, the hour has come. Now, we've heard him talk about the hour in other places in John's gospel over and over again. As a matter of fact, if you remember uh, most of it in in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, when he would talk about the hour, his word was, my hour has not yet come. When Mary came to him at the wedding feast in Cana where he did his first miracle and said, son, you can do something about this. The host is out of wine. They need wine. You can do something about that. And Jesus looked at her and said, woman, why do you push me? My hour has not yet come. And then in these other chapters in in 8 and and, and 7 and others and 10, he talks about how my hour has not yet come. Talking about the hour of his death talking about the hour of the sacrifice that he was going to make. And and then in verse 12, you start seeing a, or chapter 12, you start seeing a slow turn in his use of that word hour. Because in chapter 12, verse 20, we see these Greeks, these these non-Jews coming to him. Really the first time we have that recorded. And and there's this change of attitude. There's this change of, of looking at that point when they come to him. And from that point on, he starts talking about the hour being near. The hour is impending. There, there's, there's getting a closeness to it. Now there's a, a, a fellowship with those outside of just covenant Israel, just outside of the covenant people of, of the Jews. And, and then from that point on, he starts talking about the hour has come. And in verse 2 here, or verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. It's now. The, the storm clouds are gathering. The, the, the crowds are beginning to gather in Jerusalem. And, and Judas has gone out to do his dastardly deed. And he's gone to the high priest. And he's sold Jesus out for, for those pieces of silver. And now they're on their way to get him. They're on their way for what we're about to celebrate over the next few weeks. Easter and Good Friday and all those things. And, and they're on their way to take him away. And he says in his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Now glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Throughout all of the Gospel of John, whenever we've talked about glory, there's been the idea of Jesus' glory in this life is in His submitting to the Father's will. He existed with all glory before the world was. He talks about that. But in this life... He, he, he was glorified by the work that he was accomplishing. And now he says, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, the, the idea of glory there is splendor. The idea of glory there is magnificence, majesty, and all those type words that we use. And, and Jesus is not saying here, now, Father, you've lost your glory, you've lost your majesty, and i got to give it back to you. That's not it at all. But he's saying, Lord... Father, glorify your Son. Let them see my glory that I may reflect back toward you and I may point to you and I may show them the absolute glory which you possess, which they will one day see if they believe in me. Father, glorify your Son that I may glorify you. As I move toward this cross, 
Verse 2, he talks about authority. He said, even as you have given him. He starts, he used, in chapter two, verse 2, it's kind of interesting. He uses the third person here. Even as you have glorified him and given him authority over all mankind, over all human beings, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Wow. Do you realize that if you're a Christian this morning, if you're in the church of Jesus Christ as a true member of the church, that you are a love gift from the Father to the Son? That all those whom you have given me, I will give eternal, I have given eternal life. I give eternal life. What a, what a glorious truth. You know, when you, when you look down at, at Paul's writings and some of the other things, and you see that the church is described. How's the church described in Scripture? We talked about this on Wednesday night in our study of the doctrine of the church. How's the church described many times as the bride of Christ? He is the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ. The bride is to be loved and treasured. The, the bride is a precious gift. If you have a gentleman, if you have a wife, a bride, I hope you treasure her as a precious gift from God to you. Jesus says here, listen, I have a gift from the Father, and it's all those who believe. It's all those who come to me by faith. And every one of those that the Father has given to me, he will give eternal life. That's, a, that's heavy. That's a tremendous truth. Eternal life. Eternal life, what does that mean? Eternal life like I have right now? Well, I don't know that I want this to go on forever. I'll be honest with you. I got back aches. I got... I got uh, yeah, I have to have shoulder surgery. I, I have all sorts of... I get sick. I... I can do without all this eternally. We know he's talking about more than just a longevity. He's talking about quality. He's talking about something different. Something like what you and I have never experienced. Something like we don't experience in this life. You know, it's, it's something that, that is with him. And, and so he says, I give eternal life. A little side of that, recognize eternal life is life that never ends. He doesn't say, I give them temporal life, or I give them life for a little while, or I'll give them life if they can keep it. He's not he's Benjamin Franklin, the founder, who said, okay, we give you a republic if you can keep it. It's not that at all. It's, I, give them eternal, I give them eternal life, and it is eternal. And then he says, just... It's, it's kind of almost out of place in one sense. But he gives verse 3, which, which he says, I think, and, and in case you're not sure what I'm talking about, let me tell you what eternal life is. He says in, in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here's what eternal life is. It's to know God. Here's what eternal life is. It's to know Jesus Christ. Now, I realize we live in a day where people look at that and they say, oh, well, that, then that must mean that, that if we know God, we know Jesus, and we are some kind of puffed up uh, people because we live in a generation that says you really can't know anything. You really can say, I hope this is true, or I want that to be true, or 
or, you know, maybe this is right. But don't, don't come with any kind of arrogance of I know something to be true. We live in a very non-absolute culture, don't we? I mean, one of the top-selling books right now in the Christian theological realm is a book on doubt and saying that, you know, we really can't ever know anything to be absolutely true. It's selling like hotcakes. Because, you know, we're human beings, and we are human beings. We're, we're just human. You don't have to convince me that you're just human. I take that by faith. I see that every day in myself. I'm just human. That's no excuse. But Jesus says, here's what eternal life is. Eternal life is to know God. To know the only true God. To know the one that they talked about in Deuteronomy who said, the Lord our God is one. And he is the only one. It's to know the only true God in an intimate and personal relationship. And to know his son, Jesus Christ, the second part of the Godhead, the one who came as God in the flesh and dwelt among us, John says. You can know him and know God through him. That's the glory of eternal life. Eternal life is that I can know him now, and it begins now, and it endures for all eternity, and I'll know him and be with him in glory, and I'll be glorified by his side. Wow. It's like if I knew God, life would be a lot easier on me here. A track several years ago that was very popular, you know, when I was in college, probably still around, but the track said, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It went on to say, John 10 10 says, I have come that they might have life and might have it abundantly. And some people read that and say, well, yeah, that sounds good. I want this abundant life. I want this perfect life. I want this life of ease. And that's not what I see. That's not what Jesus said in John 14 and 15 and 16 that we're going to have. He said, you know, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but I've overcome the world. And if you know me, the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, then you will know what it means to overcome even the difficulties of this world while you're here and ultimately perfectly when you leave here. See, the problem is a lot of times we, we look at this and we say, well, why is it just not easy? As a matter of fact, we look at it and say, I don't, I don't feel like I know God very intimately. And part of the problem is because you may have come to meet him, you may have come to know him, but there's not been any real discipleship. You see, the great thing, we'll talk about this tonight in my study on our survey of the New Testament, the great thing we have to understand is all through Paul's epistles, he talks about the reality of what Christ has done. We are in Christ. We are with, in union with Christ, which Jesus talked about as the vine and the branches. But he said, but Paul makes clear that you are to pursue then the things of righteousness. You, you know him, but you're to try to know him better. That's what Paul meant in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said, I, I know him. I do know him. I've met him on the Damascus Road, but I want to know him better. I want to know him more intimately. I want to be a disciple that is growing in my faith. And that, requi that requires time and encounter. You may have heard me speak in the past about uh, an illustration out of my own life that I just kind of, I think, brings us home. Maybe it'll help you a little bit. Uh, in high school, one of my best friends was a guy named Mike Holt. Mike and I did everything together. We liked the same music. We, we liked the same cars. We, we just really got along well. And, and 
all through our junior year, we did things together, double dated together, did a lot of things together. Some things we shouldn't have done together, but we, that's another story. But Mike, just before our senior year, moved away. Now, when Mike lived in Oxford, we were together doing something just about every day of the week. When Mike moved away, he moved to Huntsville, Alabama, and, and you know there we talked for a while. I went and saw him some. He'd come see me once, once a month or every so often, and we'd go back and forth. But as he got into his routine there, and I was in my senior year at Oxford High School, it just, we kind of just drifted apart. And Mike was still my friend. I still loved him like a brother. And if he had called me and said, can you do something for me, I would have tried my best to do it, and, and he for me. But, but the friendship just kind of diminished. And while I knew Mike, there was not that intimate relationship. There's not that intimate walk that we experienced at home. And so it just kind of drifted apart. But I'll never forget standing in the HA line at the University of Alabama for freshman orientation, freshman registration, and I'm in the HA line, and the HO line is two lines over, and that's where the Holtz are. The Haynes are here and Holtz over there. And I'm standing there trying to figure out the schedule. This was long before computers, and it was no fun to register. And I'm standing there trying to figure out my schedule and how I can get the, easy, I mean, get the best classes I can get. And, um, and I hear this voice from two lines over, Hey, Bill! Well, he really said Billy, but, hey, Bill. And I turned around and looked, and there is Mike Holt. And we ran together, and we embraced. We said, man, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to be living in this hall, and I was going to live right next door in another dorm. And, and all of a sudden, during our freshman year of college, we were together just about every day. We went to Bible studies together with certain campus groups, and we, we did things together. We would eat in the same cafeteria, and, and just that relationship picked up again. And all of a sudden, I didn't just know Mike. I really had a relationship with Mike. Until my sophomore year when I decided to transfer to Jacksonville State because some girl was going to go there who wouldn't go to Alabama. So I went there. And uh, it's another long story. but And the same routine happened. Mike and I stayed in touch. We saw each other through the summer some. We did some things together. Went to a concert together. Did a few things. But, but it just kind of drifted apart. You know, a lot of times that's how we treat our relationship with Christ. Man, we come to Christ and, and Christ literally invades our life and is so real and so powerful and we trust Him and we sense our sins are forgiven and we sense that relationship and, and we say, wow, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. In those first few months, maybe in the first few years, we're in the Word, we're studying the Bible, we're praying, we're talking to Him, we're, we're lifting our eyes toward heaven and we're saying, Father, through your son Jesus, I, I come before you. And we're studying his word, and he's teaching us through his word. And others are, and we're worshiping, and all sorts of things are happening. And then, then we, as we say, we get so involved in the real world, when really that's the real world, this is the fake. And, but we get so involved in everyday stuff that Bible study becomes less. Prayer time becomes less. And that intimacy, we're still his, we're still a friend, we're still, we still belong to him. We don't lose our salvation, but boy, we lose some of the joy of that salvation, don't we? That's what David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba. And after Nathan the prophet pointed his bony finger in his face and said, you're the one. And he came to repentance and in, in Psalm 51 he said, you know, against you and you alone have I sinned. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
He didn't say, give me my salvation back. Give me your salvation back. He said, no, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what Jesus is praying for for you in here, just in his aside of praying for himself. He said, listen, this is eternal life, that they will know you, the only true God, and know your son Jesus, whom you have sent. And, and that's what our life is to be about as believers. We are to desire with Paul to know him better every day. We're desired to pursue him and pursue his righteousness. You know, seek him first and his righteousness and his kingdom, and everything else will take care of itself. Everything else will be added to you. That's what been promised by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is eternal life. And then he goes back to the glorified. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus, all through his ministry, said, I'm only here to do what God sent me to do. Only to do what the Father sent me to do. I'm only here to accomplish what he told me to do. Here he says, I've done that. I've lived a perfect life. I have called a group of disciples around me and I've trained them and I'm preparing them for, to be filled with your Holy Spirit and preparing to send them out into the world that one day, down through the ages, there'll be a group meeting at Grace Baptist Church that know you, God, and know me because of their work. I'm, I'm preparing them. I've done what you sent me to do. Glorify now. You've, I've glorified you on the earth, and I've done what you sent me to do. Now glorify you, me, together with yourself, Father, that the glory which I ever had with you before the world was will be reestablished. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that he became as a bondservant, emptying himself of the glory. He didn't empty himself of deity. He remained God-man. didn't empty himself, but he, he emptied himself of his glory. And he came and lived a self-emptying life of incarnation. And now he's just simply saying, Father... Restore to me what was mine before I came to do what you sent me to do. My work is coming to an end. My work is about to be accomplished. And Father, these who have followed me and these who will follow me in the future, they need to see that that cross is an act of work. It's an act of your will. It's an act of salvation. It's an act of, uh, of atonement. They need to see that. But they need to see, oh Lord, that it goes beyond that cross, that it does not end there. So Lord, I'm going to ask you, glorify me. Give me back the glory, the majesty, the, the splendor that I had before the world began. When, Father, we were there creating all that there is. When in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made that was not made through Him. Restore to me that glory. Glorify the Son. And even that's not an end in itself. But Jesus says in His petition, He wants to be glorified so that He can further glorify the Father. Folks, as we come to Christ, 
as we come and show that we are that love gift to the Son from the Father that He prays about here, you have given me out of the world, our purpose is not an end in getting saved. It's not the end. It's merely the beginning. You know what? Our purpose becomes the same purpose of Jesus in one sense. Not in the same way. We, we don't come to Christ and we are all in glory and splendor and majesty and here we are great and powerful. We're still, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with pain. We still struggle in this world. But in reality, as He glorifies Himself to us and we see the glory of the Son and He draws us to Himself and we believe, then we are to be those who reflect back His glory and glorify the Father and glorify the Son and exalt them in every part of our life. Jesus in verses 1 through 5 is praying for Himself and reminding us what eternal life is. These other two sections, he's going to pray for the disciples, which ultimately becomes a prayer for us too. And then he's going to pray specifically for you and me. That you may know the joy of this life. That you may know what it means to have life and have it abundantly. That you may know what it means to live in the midst of a messed up world. In the midst of a lot of sin, in the midst of a lot of struggle, in the midst of a lot of chaos, it appears. And yet know that you're not alone. Know that you're not by yourself. Know that the very Son is present with you. The very true and only God is present with you. To keep you from sin keep you from to keep you from just chucking it all and to say listen I've overcome the world and you may be hurting right now and and you may be going through tough times right now and the world may hate you right now because you've chosen you you have you have chosen to profess me publicly before them the world might hate you but I'm with you And they hated me before they hated you. That's why they hate you. But I've overcome the world. But do you see that this eternal life is not something that you just say, I I accept, I, I receive, I've got it. Now I'm going to wait till I die so I can really experience it. This eternal life is something that is to be nourished, is to be fed, is to be entered into in March of 2014, not just the day you go to heaven when you die or He comes again as we sang about, but you do that by feeding on His Word. You do that by coming before Him in prayer, serious prayer, diligent prayer. And not just prayer to say, God, I want you to do this for me. But prayer that says, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you more. It's a song's written in the 80s. I wish I could sing it. But I'll spare you. That just says, Lord, I want to know you more. To know you in your resurrection. To know you in the midst of all this suffering. 
Lord, I just want to know you more. That's where you start prayer. There's where you start spiritual growth. There's where you start knowing the reality of Christ in your life every day. It's, 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 it's pursuing Him. It's desiring Him. It's wanting Him. Wanting Him to be real right now. Lord, I've trusted You. Boy, it seems so real when I first made that commitment. It seems so real when I first was baptized and, and, and believed in you. It, it seems so real. But with time, it's lessened. Why, Lord? Lord, have you turned your back on me? Have you walked away? Have you left me? No. He's not moved. He's not moved an iota. He's not moved that much. But have you taken your gaze off of him and put your gaze on other stuff? You know, is your gaze on things that will not matter beyond an hour from now? Or is your gaze and your focus, and your desire to know Him? It's a simple question. But only you can answer it. Let's pray. Father, as we lift our eyes toward heaven, as we literally want to know you more, show us what that means, Father. Show us what it means in the midst of pain and sickness and financial difficulties and a world that doesn't understand us and a world that seeks to silence you. Lord, Teach us what it means just to know you. And teach us what it means to take that to the world around us. Teach us, Father, what it means to be your disciples. Not, not just members of a church. Teach us what it means to seek you and your kingdom first and your righteousness first above everything else, and you'll add all these other things to us. Lord, I guess what I'm asking is teach us to pray rightly. Even as you prayed. Rightly. Thank you, Father. Do your work in our lives. For men and women here this morning who don't know you, I pray your Holy Spirit will open their eyes and open their heart to believe, to see Christ as the only Savior, to see their sin as their 
only thing they have to bring. But open their heart to believe on Christ and profess that before men. Father, do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.